The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hekeliah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev in the twelfth year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hananiah, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, The remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants, who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was cupbearer to the king. Amen. You may be seated. May we be blessed by the reading of God's word this morning. We are in Nehemiah chapter 1. We'll start a new series called The God Who Builds. This is coming out of, after long prayer, of where, where would God have us? We spent uh, over 30 weeks in the book of Matthew, in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. And in that series, the Sermon on the Mount, we talked about God was establishing His people for His kingdom. And when we get called into His kingdom, we become citizens of His kingdom. And so coming out of that series, uh, thinking and praying, what would God have for us next? I believe Nehemiah could be a real pivotal moment over these next 14 to 18 weeks as we study this book of the Bible. Uh, Nehemiah is an amazing book. It's a man man that has great vision from the Lord. Um, But throughout this book, though this book is named Nehemiah, this book has nothing really to do with Nehemiah. Uh, We see that in verse 5 that uh, Bethany just read. The book is about a great and awesome God. And so for us this morning, we must realize that we serve a great and awesome God who wants to do things in our lives. God wants to do things here at Powell's Chapel, amen? I know we've been here 140 years, but God is not through with us. I believe with all of my heart the same words that Isaiah spoke When he says the best is yet to come, I believe that to be true uh, for us. But I believe it will start with us really understanding and having a heart like Nehemiah. And it won't be having a heart like Nehemiah, but it will be having a heart like God. We here at Powell's Chapel must have a heart like God. I love what this uh, theologian says, J.I. Packer says it this way. He says, as the church consists of individuals who by coming to faith, that's us coming to know Christ Jesus as our Lord, and associate as believers 
We have become the Lord's people. His vine, His flock, His temple, His nation. So Christ's building of the church is a matter of His so changing people where on the inside. If we're going to be used by God, there has to be a change internally. In their hearts, as we say, the repentance, the faith, and obedience before more and more of the pattern of our lives. They, these things must be the patterns of our lives. Repentance and faith and obedience must take root in our lives. The change has to come within us. And so it's going to come out of what Nehemiah says in verse 5. It's because of a great and awesome God. We're going to look at several things this morning, but before we get to Nehemiah, I've got to kind of start back in Exodus. Because you've got to know some background of what happened in the book of Nehemiah before he studied the book of Nehemiah. Um, the book of Nehemiah is written about the exiles in Jerusalem, but it all started back in Exodus. If you know the story in Exodus, you remember that, that Joseph's brothers sold him into slavery, and they took Joseph and they sent him off to Potiphar's house. And then in Potiphar's house, there's this line throughout the story of Joseph that says God was with him and God was with him and God was with him. And so God had placed Joseph in Egypt for a purpose. And then if you remember, the brothers come to Joseph because there's this great famine in the land and all of Israel in that moment move into Egypt because of the wickedness of the brothers. And so here is all of Israel now in Egypt and they begin to grow and grow and grow. And not only in their growth and numerically, but they begin to grow spiritually, they begin to grow in depth. And so then uh, Potiphar and Pharaoh begin to fear the greatness of Israel. Really, it's the greatness of God. And so if you remember, in that moment, Israel's becoming this great nation within a nation of Egypt. And Pharaoh says, hey, let's put them into captivity. Let's put them into slavery. And then for about uh, several hundred years, the people of God are in slavery. And then God raises up Moses. Remember, again, God put Moses as a Jew into the house of uh, Potiphar, into the house of Pharaoh, to use Moses in a mighty way. And Moses then, he says to Moses, hey, I want to use you, Moses, to lead my people out of slavery into a promised land. Well, you remember he begins to lead the people out and in his leading the people out, the people what? They sin again. And so we see this redemptive work of God redeeming his people from slavery, and then yet he frees them. And that's the pattern of our life, really. So over and over again, we see this pattern. God's going to redeem people and save people, and then people are going to sin. God's going to redeem people and save people and sin. And so that happens over and over and over then we get all the way to Nehemiah. It's happened again. The people of God have sinned against God. And in doing so, God has taken them and put them into exile. That's what happened in the book of Daniel. Remember the first chapter of Daniel talks about the exile that Nebuchadnezzar had taken God's people back into captivity. So here's the people of God back in captivity. And now there's this remnant of people that it says in verse Three, the remnant there in the providence has survived the exile. There's still a remnant of God's people. And this remnant of God's people had escaped and gone back to where the temple was built. 
They had gone back to, if you remember in the Old Testament, the temple is where God dwelt. And so they got removed from the temple of God. They got removed from the presence of God into exile. And yet they escaped to go back to God in repentance. So this is where we have the setting of Nehemiah. Nehemiah and the book of Ezra, really, you could call it Ezra 1 and 2 or Nehemiah 1 and 2. They were written at the same time uh, by different authors, but it's the same period. So it's not like Ezra's one time period, Nehemiah's one time period. These are two writers that are happening at the same time talking about the exiles of God. And so now, all of a sudden, uh, we can really start back at verse 11 of this chapter. Now I was a cupbearer to the king. Here's a Jewish man placed in a very prominent position in the land that the people were in exile and he was placed there by God. I believe so fully with all of my being, God has placed us here for a purpose. From the beginning of time and God's sovereignty and God's finite wisdom, he knew the people of God and who he would want to put at Powell's Chapel 140 years after it started. God chose you to be here. You are not here this morning by circumstance. You and I are not here because we decided to move to Murfreesboro. No, the wisdom and infinite wisdom of God chose you to sit in this pew this morning for a purpose greater than yourself. Amen? And so in the wisdom of God, God had taken uh, Nehemiah and had put Nehemiah at second in command over all the land. That's not by happenstance. That's because God wanted to use Nehemiah to do something for the people of God. And so it's important to know he was a cupbearer. What that meant was he, he was second in command over all of the nation. He was the king's uh, most trusted advisor. He was the king's closest friend. He was the guy that the king in his worst of days would have gone and sat and had coffee with to share his pain with. Nehemiah knew everything everything that was happening in the kingdom. Nehemiah was also the man that would taste everything that came before the king. That's what it meant to be a cupbearer. So anything that came to the table of the king, Nehemiah would eat it first so to see if it was poison or not. That was his only job. Could you imagine that job? All he did all day was drink the finest wines and ate the finest foods. That's all he did all day. Now you'd have to roll me out of here. Like he had no other uh, pressure on him other than you might die when you eat this. That's kind of it. So can you imagine his only job is to be the king's best friend to taste the best of the best of the best and live in luxury. That's what he did all day. That was his job the rest of his life. And it's so important to know that. Because of Nehemiah's response. We'll get there in a minute. We'll look at five things through this book. And I think it has to happen in us if God is going to use us. We have to be first and foremost honest with ourselves. Are not the walls of the kingdom of God around us broken down? You see, that's what happened in the time. 
the, the people of God had gotten taken out of, into exile, a remnant of people went back and saw that their land had been destroyed. They saw where the presence of God dwelt. They saw their temple broken. Is that not true for us today? We are not the same nation that we were even 25 years ago, much, much less 200 years ago. And we have this cavalier attitude. Oh well. We as believers have a cavalier attitude to the broken walls around us. Which tells me that we have a cavalier attitude about the broken walls in our own lives first. And so God wants to do a greater work in you and in me before he does a work through me and through you. The walls of our heart must be restored before the walls around us will be restored. Amen? So it starts with us this morning. If we want to look out and see the lostness in our community and that there's over 2,000 homes that are here and another 1,000 it looks like going up, who knows when in the next several months... But it has to start with our hearts before we look out to the people and their brokenness. And we'll get to how Nehemiah gets there. And so I love how even the book of Nehemiah starts. Circle the word Nehemiah in your Bible. His name means God comforts. So God is going to use a prophet named Nehemiah, which the people would know, oh, God comforts even in our brokenness. We have to start there. Do we not believe this morning that we have a God who comforts in spite of the brokenness? So it says, Nehemiah, and it happened in the month of Shivlev, which is basically just November 2, uh, December, it was when the kings would go to their resort homes. And so here's Nehemiah traveling with the kings. Uh, I, I, you may not know this, but coming from Florida, there's this beautiful place called Naples. And about uh, this time of year, it's vacant because everyone goes home. But, but in, in around uh, November, early November, uh, this time period, man, it would just be flooded with we called people snowbirds. I don't know where that name comes, I guess because the snowbirds fly. I, I have no idea. I think it's a dumb name anyway. But all these people would come in. That's what was happening here in Nehemiah. So Nehemiah and the king and all the king's people that were close to the king would go to their retreat home, their winter home. And so this is the time f- period. And then in verse 2 it says his brother, his literal brother came to him. And it says this. The first thing that we see to have a heart like God, to have a great and awesome God, we have to have the heart of God, and it starts with the heart of compassion. Nehemiah looked out with compassion, and it said this, when his brothers came to him, concerning the men of Judah, the men who were in exile, who had escaped and gone home, it says this, and I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped, who survived the exiles concerning Jerusalem. The first thing that we see are two things here in Nehemiah. Nehemiah was a man of great concern, of deep concern. 
right? He says that, that the people, his own people had come to him. He was in the palace with the king. And he had it all. And yet his heart had concern for his people. He did not allow the, the, the grandness of all that was in the palace to distract him from the heart of the people that were in exile. He had a deep compassion. You see, Nehemiah saw and understood the great need of the people. Nehemiah didn't allow the distractions to take him away from his heart, and his heart was for people. Here's what an ancient man says. He says, how few the strong men in those days, he's talking about Nehemiah's days, who can weep at the evils and the abominations of the times. How rare are those who, seeing the desolation of Zion, the sufficiency interested in the concerns of the welfare of the church to mourn. Mourning and weeping over the decay of a religion the decline of a revival power and the fearful inroads of the worldliness in the church are almost unknown. Nehemiah was a mourner. Do we have a great and deep concern for people? You see, Nehemiah had it all. And yet, even in having it all, he had more of a heart for the brokenness of his people. Sounds like another man almost 2,000 years later. He was a man that had it all. That was right next to God, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. And yet, when the king said to him, hey, it's time to go, because I have a heart for my people, King Jesus came. Why? Because he wanted to be obedient to the Father, and he had a heart for the lostness of people. That's the reason Jesus came was to glorify the Father and interact with the lost people of the world. He wept over people. So do we look out onto our community with a sense of deep concern? The next thing we see is he had a cl clear priorities. Verse 3. And they said to him, the remnant there in the providence who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The walls of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed. You see, what you know and what we know about Nehemiah through those verses, he was not concerned about the gates being destroyed and the, the gates being burned and the walls destroyed. He was concerned that the people of God had no protection any longer. That's what the walls were there for. The walls were around the city, the city of David, the city of God, to protect them and to protect their religious freedom that they had within the city and so Nehemiah heard that Nehemiah heard that the walls had crumbled he had heard that the gates had crumbled and he heard that hey there's now no defense for the people of God we live amongst the people that have no defense and yet he had a deep concern for people rather than things what is my priority this morning is the question I've got to ask myself. Because if my priority is simply to have a, a, a comfort zone, then I'm not going to do the things of God because serving God is not comfortable, amen? Serving God takes, we'll get there in a second, serving God takes huge sacrifice on our part. 
but we have the greatest example of sacrifice that's ever lived. You see, again, if there's anyone that had comfort beyond comfort beyond comfort, it was Christ himself, right? He lived in heaven. He lived next to God. He was with God. He knew no sin. He was not around sin. And yet, his priority was to glorify God and to redeem people, so he gave up his comfort. You see, to reach lost people, we must be concerned for lost people. But we must have a priority for lost people. And our priorities will need to change if we really want to be a church that reaches this community. So first and foremost this morning, do we look out onto our community with great compassion? The second thing we see is in verses 4 through 6. It says this, we look out with a deep, deep dependence. So we, we get into the compassion. Now he sees that the walls and hears the walls and gates are destroyed. The people are, are in, in great danger and in great shame. And it says this. It says this in verse 4. This shows us more of his compassion and his priority. As soon as I heard the words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. You see, does our concern and does our compassion and does our priorities align with God? You see, I can hear things all day about the lostness of the people around me, the brokenness of people even in our church, but hearing is not what's going to accomplish the task. We must be moved into action, and that is what happens with Nehemiah. Nehemiah is moved to action. And the action isn't go in the moment and solve their wall problem or their gate problem. His action is compelled to what? Pray and fast and mourn. You see, how often do I hear of anything or you hear of something and I'm compelled to do something and and I get off the couch and go do something to fix the problem and if I don't consult with God, I make the problem worse. Like Nehemiah in that moment heard that the walls were down, heard the gates were destroyed, and he was moved with concern and moved with compassion, but he didn't leave where he was to take the action to go rebuild. He saw a dependence on the Lord. God, what would you have me do? You see, we can do all the things that we're doing. A movie night this Friday. Uh, We can have the children come for a workshop. We can do all these things, but if we're not doing them out of a prayer life that is dependent on God, then we're just doing. And so is all that the church is doing out of those things. Do we have a priority? And is our first priority, hey, am I on my face before a holy God in dependence on a holy God? Because apart from God, I can do nothing. Apart from God, you can do nothing. And you may argue, well, I can do a lot of things. Sure. I can preach without the dependence of the Lord. I've got the skills to do that. And you would have no idea. I could get up, I could open my Bible, I could read the, the, the verse, I could have an outline. But if I'm not soaking my life in God's 
word through prayer, then I will just come up with empty words that have no eternal power and no eternal value. And so Nehemiah knew, I can go back to Jerusalem and I have all the skill set to put a wall back together, but I need a dependency on the Lord. And so he looked with dependency on the Lord. We see this nine other times in the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah is dependent on the Lord. Because Nehemiah understood that he served a great and awesome God. And because of his understanding of who God was, he was able to go before God to do and say what only God could do and say through him. That's a dependency on the Lord. We see five things of what it looks like through Nehemiah to have a true dependency on the Lord. The first one is in verse 4. is a commitment. In my dependency on the Lord, through my prayer life, through my devotional life, do I have a commitment? You see what it says there. As soon as I heard these words, the words that the people were in exile and they had great trouble and shame, I sat down and I wept and I mourned, highlighted for days. I don't know about you if you've ever fasted, but it takes true commitment to really fast before the Lord. And we can hear that all for days. What, what this says is that he mourned and wept and fasted in a season of his life for almost four months, as we'll get to next week. Four months he fasted. Now, that doesn't mean every day. He had a seasons of fasting. But he made a point to pray before holy God day in and day out and day in and day out and was never uh, given up in his, even in his discouragement because he had a commitment to God. I was talking to someone uh, e- this week even about this, how often we have this commitment and then we get discouraged and in that discouragement we just kind of quit. And in the quitting, it may be the next time that we think we need to do something we don't do it, that that's what God wants to use but because we don't have a commitment to God, we don't see it through. And so for us as a church, we must stay committed to God. We must stay committed to the vision of God. The vision here at Powell Chapel is to know Him and to make Him known. Are we committed to that? Am I committed to that? Because there's so often in my own life, my own prayer life, in my own time with the Lord, it's like I go the same thing over and over again. I think, man, what is even the point? God, I've read your word daily. I've prayed daily and nothing changes. And so I just want to give up. But i got to look at Nehemiah, who had a commitment to a holy God because he understood God's awesomeness and holiness, and he had that commitment. The next one is so important. It was genuine. We see that because he wept and he mourned. I think to myself, when's the last time I really wept and mourned over people. When's the last time that I just poured it all out before God for God's people? That's what Nehemiah did. Remember in Luke chapter 19, Jesus is over Jerusalem, the very city that Nehemiah is weeping on some 2,000 years ago. Another prophet from God, Jesus, weeps over the same city. 
he had a commitment to the city. He had a commitment to God. And he had a genuine prayer life. The second thing, we, the third thing we see is this. Having a true prayer life and a true dependence on the Lord will be sacrificial. It says, I mourned and I fasted and I prayed before God for days. For days. You see, Nehemiah gave it all up. He gave up sacrifices to be with God in communion. Being committed to God and being on mission with God is going to take a sacrifice on our part. What are we willing to sacrifice? To become inconvenienced with, to become uncomfortable with because we have a heart for God. Because we have a heart for God, we have an understanding of God's heart and God's heart is for lost people. Church, it's going to take sacrifice. I might step on toes and, man, I'm glad it's a year and the year may come and go and I may not be here this time next year because of this comment. And I don't care. Church, it's going to take sacrifice on our part to reach lost people. And what I mean by that, it's going to take sacrifice of your comfort level. I get you understand that you want to do church a certain way, and we've been doing church a certain way, but we're going to have to take a sacrifice if we're going to go and reach people. You see, if God made a sacrifice and sent His only Son to be our sacrifice, you talk about uncomfortable? God made a sacrifice. And I believe wholeheartedly God is calling our church this morning to make some sacrifices. I don't know where all those are, but we've got to become uncomfortable. To reach the people for God. Christ himself became uncomfortable. If Christ could take 40 lashes minus one for your sake, so can we. You talk about uncomfortable. If Jesus Christ can take a spear to the side, then so can you and I. If Jesus Christ can leave heaven for our sake, so can we. Let's make some sacrifices for the greater good of the kingdom of God. Amen? The next thing we see is this. We must be persistent. We must be like the story in the New Testament where that man went to God over and over and over and pestered God. Are we pestering God with the lostness of our community? Are we pestering God for the lostness within our own families? Are we pestering God for our husbands and our wives and our children who are far from God? Are we persistent and are we pestering God that God would do a work through us in them? He did it for days and days and days and days before He ever moved to action. Before he ever put one brick on a wall, Nehemiah spent time with the Lord and was persistent with the Lord for the lostness of his people. And the biggest and last one in our prayer life has to be what we see in verse 5 and 6. It says this, And then I said, O Lord God of heaven, great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep commandment, 
Let your ear be attentive and your eyes be open to hear the prayers of your servant that I now pray before you day and night before the people of Israel, your servants. Next thing we see is this. That we have a confidence in God. Can we say, not just with our brains this morning, but with our hearts, oh, we serve an awesome and great God. Because if I don't serve an awesome God, and I don't serve a great God, and I don't serve a good God, I'm not going to be persistent, and I'm not going to give up sacrifices, and I'm not going to make a commitment. So I've got to be assured in my own heart that, oh God, you are a great and awesome God. Do I have that confidence this morning? Do you have that confidence this morning? You see, because Nehemiah, in that verse 5 and 6, he understood God was great and awesome. He understood the compassion of God. He understood God's promises that he kept them. And he understood God's concern for lost people. Do I believe the same things that Nehemiah believed about the same God? You see, because once I believe in those things and I understand who God is and I have a consistent prayer life before holy God, it's going to lead me to what Nehemiah did. You see, it was Nehemiah having an understanding and a recognition that God is holy and God is awesome that moves into verse 7, 6 and 7, that he looked to God with repentance. Right? That's what happens in verse 6b. He prays all these things in the confidence that he knows God is. And he says this, And I pray now before you day and night, what for? For the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I, my father, in my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you, and we have not kept the commandments the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. So we must see who God is because in seeing who God truly is, we will come just like Isaiah did in chapter 6. Oh, woe is me, for I'm a man of unclean lips. Do you remember that God takes Isaiah up into the heavens and Isaiah is sitting there washing all of heaven worship before the throne of God and in in Isaiah's understanding of who God is, he falls before God and says, I am unclean even to be up here. He made a confession. He made a repentance. That's what Nehemiah did. Nehemiah understood the greatness of who God was, the awesomeness of who God is. And because of his understanding of who God was, he fell on his face before God in repentance. I believe that God wants to do something in us mightily, but I believe it's going to start with repentance. It has to start with repentance. Because if it does not start with repentance, then if we don't repent, we won't be dependent on the one that we repent to. So three things in there we see in our repentance. There must be an intensity in our repentance. Nehemiah repented day in and day out. Day in and day out. Nehemiah understood that he was a wicked man before a holy God, and because of his wickedness, there were sins of omission and sins of commission, and he had to repent of both of them. Uh, commission, omission, and commission, just things, there's sins that we do that we don't know we do, and then there's sins that we do when we know we do them. And so 
Nehemiah had the right understanding of God. I am wicked, and because of my wickedness, there's sins in my life that I do commit that I know, and there's sins I don't do commit that I don't even know. So i got to repent day in and day out before holy God. Do, does my life line up with Nehemiah that I have a consistent prayer life of repentance? The second thing is, do I have a consistent life of repentance that's truly honest? You see, Nehemiah could have gone. You remember, Nehemiah is some 800 miles away from the people. And even though he's 800 miles away from the people, there's an honesty about Nehemiah. Not only have the people of God sinned, but I've sinned as well. You see, he could have prayed just for the people that were in exile, just for the people that had the broken down walls. But Nehemiah prayed an honest prayer. Not only have they sinned, but oh God, I've sinned. And so we as a church can say, yes, we as a church have sinned, but do we as a church say, oh, I have sinned? Does it start with me first or does it start with other people? Do I repent for your sins first or do I repent for my sins first? The last one is this. We see that there's a great urgency, just like what we talked about last week. Nehemiah had this urgency and this understanding that it wasn't about the sin against other people that was in great danger. He had sinned against the holy God. Remember the prodigal son, he said, oh, I've sinned against you, God. I've sinned against you. Do we have that urgency that we've sinned against God? Because when we do, when we come to this place of repentance, God will discipline us. Here's what Paul Tripp says about that in our repentance and in God's grace and in God's mercy and in God's kindness and love and discipline, he says this, in his mercy, God hammers at us, at you and me. Not with the sledgehammers of condemnation, but with the hammers of restoration. You see, you know this. Ronald, you know this. You restore cars. You got to pound on a car to restore it. And so God has to pound on us to restore us, and the pounding isn't comfortable, but the pounding must take place for restoration to happen, right? If we restore a car, you've got to do work on a car to restore it, and it takes a hammer to, to restore. God must use that same hammer to restore us, and restoration is not comfortable. He's constantly tapping the wedges of redemption into place. He's constantly working to separate you and me from our sin. Ouch. He's refinishing us by His grace so that we can shine with His character. He is willing to be condemned so that we may live in beauty for the purpose for which we were first constructed, the praise of His glory. You see, that's what repentance does. Repentance, when we come before a holy God, we repent, and in our repentance, God hammers the sin out of our lives, and when sin begins to get eradicated from our lives, we do what we were always meant to do, and that was to put God on display and the glory of God on display. It always starts with repentance. The last one is this. We must look back with gratitude. We see these things this morning so far. We see that Nehemiah had a heart of compassion. 
He had a heart of dependency. He had a heart of redemption. And he had a heart of gratitude. Because what does he say in verse 8? Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though you're, though you're outcast, you are in the outermost parts of the heavens, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed. Circle that in your Bible. By your great power and by your strong hand. You see, Nehemiah did two things. He remembered what God had said. He remembered the commandments of God, but he also remembered what God had done. The question for me and for you this morning, can I look back at a time in my life with gratitude for all that God has said and done? Because if we serve an awesome God and we serve a good God and we serve a loving God, we ought to have gratitude in our lives for those things. And having a heart has to have a heart of gratitude must come from a place of remembrance. Do you remember the greatness of God? If you are here this morning and you are a believer in Jesus Christ this morning, then you have gratitude. If nothing else, if nothing else in your life has ever gone well for you, but you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you have gratitude because God chose you to be saved. There's gratitude in that. But all the other blessings that God has given to you and to me. Do I have gratitude for Jenny? Do I have gratitude for Tennyson? Do I have gratitude for Cedar? Do I have a gratitude for my job? Do I have gratitude for being a pastor here? Do I have gratitude even this morning of waking up and putting my two feet on the ground and walking over here? That's gratitude. I did not choose to get up this morning. I did not choose to have my heart keep beating this morning. I did not choose to make a breath this morning. The sovereign, holy God of the universe and His wisdom said, today is one more day for you, Todd. That is gratitude. I don't deserve that, nor do you. Do I have gratitude this morning? Do we believe in the sovereignty of God, that God is in control of all things, even the breath that you take now? Because if God is the God of creation, God is the God who can end creation. And so if God wanted you dead right now, you'd be dead. But in God's wisdom, He's breathing life into you through your lungs in this very moment for a purpose. There is a purpose for you to be alive this morning. And the last thing that we say this, verse 11. Do we look ahead with confidence? Oh Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give what? Success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. I don't have time to teach too much on that last one. But this morning, do we have confidence in God? Do we have confidence the way Nehemiah had confidence to say, oh, give me success today, God. Where is our confidence level in the Lord this morning? 
I would rather preach a whole sermon right on this last word, but I can't. Not this morning. He says, and grant me mercy in the sight of this man. This man was the king. You see, Nehemiah had the right understanding of who God is and who God was. And he understood that the king was not God, that the king was just another man just like him. You see, our fear and our shame, our anxiety can say to us, oh man, they're, they're this and they're that and it's my boss and it's this neighbor and I don't want to offend them. I don't want to do this and I don't want to do that. But at the end of the day, they're just a man or a woman just like you and me. You talk about anxiety. Here's Nehemiah about to go to the king and we're going to see it next week. He's about to go to a king and ask for a lot of stuff for free. Now you don't go to a king and ask for stuff for free. That's how you got killed back then. But Nehemiah had the right understanding that God was sovereign in control. And not only God had placed him as a cupbearer, but God had placed him as a king. And they're the same person. They're just two different men. And that's what's all around us. They're just ordinary people, just like you and me. And the last one, as we close this morning, is this. He was a cupbearer. That's significant. But God had chosen Nehemiah to be a cupbearer for a greater purpose than being a cupbearer. God had chosen Nehemiah to be a cupbearer to restore the people of God. And so this morning, God has chosen you to work at a bank, to work on a bus, to be a school teacher, to put ACs in, to do whatever you do, not for a paycheck. God in His infinite, sovereign wisdom chose you for the beginning of time to hand place you where you were at for a purpose, and the purpose is for His renown and His glory to be used by Him to redeem lost people, to begin to put brick into place, to bring restoration into the brokenness of our world. If you want to know why God has you where he has you, it's for that very purpose. And when God's done with you there, I promise this, God will move you to where he wants you to move if you have the confidence of who God is. And so I don't know why God, what God has for you, but I do know why God has you there. It's for his purpose, his renown, his glory to bring a holiness of God into a lost world. That is the reason God has us go where we go. Even today, if you go out to lunch and whoever waits on you, there is a reason God allowed you to choose to go to Toots to eat chicken tenders, which are the best on the planet. But he also chose that little girl, high school, college girl, to wait on you. And if she's not there to wait on you to take an order, she's waiting on you to display the glory of God to her. Do we believe that this morning? Because if we believe that, then we'll begin to believe that God wants to restore people and that God will use us as a church to restore people. And the church is not this building. The church is you and you and you and you and you and me. We are the church of God to put the glory of God on display to the broken walls around us. Let me pray for us. And as I pray, I'd ask that the deacons come forward. We're going to take the Lord's Supper as, this morning as a true reminder of the sacrificial love that God had for us. Let us never forget what this table means. This is not just 
some bread and some juice. This is the very body of Christ Jesus and the very blood of Christ Jesus poured out on you and me this morning to redeem us and to give us hope and to take that hope into a lost world this morning. We're going to do the Lord's Supper a little different this morning. I'm going to pray this prayer over us. And John's going to come, and as John comes, he's going to sing a song over us. And as he's singing, my prayer is that you would reflect on this message today. Oh God, use us, because you are a great and awesome God. Let me pray this prayer over you. Holy Spirit, we are utterly feeble and weak. We need your power at work in us. Help us to know and to worship our God as he is our King and our Father who loves us passionately in the middle of our perverse foolishness. Press the truth of your gospel deep into our souls that we see the work of your triune God, the Father, the lover of our souls, Jesus, man of sorrows, humble, weary, bleeding for us, but at the same time the gracious Lamb upon the throne, crowned with many crowns, and worshipped by the angelic host and the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who is graciously at work in our lives and in our hearts, calls us to know and feel God's great love for us, until we are transformed into people who love others deeply because of the great sense of our own need and an undeniable sense of our forgiveness and adoption. Open our lips to join the heavenly worship service and sing praises to our heavenly King today, tomorrow, and forever. Amen. Allow us to be reminded as we take the Lord's Supper of all that God has done for us.